It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It was a chilly November day when 15-year-old Angela Correa headed out to take pictures for a photography class. Camera and lens in hand, she was hoping to capture the autumnal beauty of the woods in her hometown of Peekskill, New York. However, Angela never returned home. Two days later, on November 17, 1989, Angela's body was found. She had been brutally raped and murdered. The news of her death crushed her classmates at Peekskill High School, one of whom was 16-year-old Jeff Deskovic. As he mourned, detectives took notice and decided that his reactions of grief were suspicious. They later designated young Jeff the prime suspect in the case. After weeks of investigation, the detectives zeroed in on him. Driving him across county lines to meet with a polygrapher, he was subjected to hours of interrogations and polygraph tests. Detectives ultimately coerced him into a false confession. The case proceeded to trial on the basis of the false confession. Even Jeff's DNA did not match the DNA found on Angela's body. But at 17 years old, in December of 1990, Jeff was convicted of first-degree rape and second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Jeff was in an unimaginable position. He was innocent. But how could he prove it while he was incarcerated after having confessed? This is his story. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Jeff spent the next 16 years of his life in a maximum security prison, subjected to violent beatings and hopelessness. Meanwhile, Angela's real killer remained free. While incarcerated, Jeff appealed his case seven times. Each time was unsuccessful. It was only when Jeff's case was taken up by the Innocence Project that a match for the DNA found on Angela's body was identified. The DNA recovered was entered into the New York State DNA databank and matched to Stephen Cunningham, a convicted murderer who was serving life in prison for the 1993 murder of another woman. This murder occurred after Jeff was wrongly convicted. On September 20th, 2006, Jeff was finally released from prison and his conviction was overturned the court dismissed his indictment on the grounds of actual innocence, and he was later compensated for his wrongful imprisonment. Jeff seized the opportunity to make up for lost time and went back to school, earning his bachelor's degree from Mercy College, his master's degree from the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and his law degree from Pace University. Jeff was admitted to the New York State Bar in October 2020 and established the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation of Justice, 
a nonprofit dedicated to preventing wrongful convictions and exonerating those wrongfully convicted in both DNA and non-DNA cases. Today, he joins me to share the incredible work of his foundation and the story of his unwavering fight for justice. Jeff, tell me about the Jeffrey Deskabik Foundation of Justice and what its mission and purpose are. Yeah, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice is a 501c3 nonprofit organization with the mission of freeing wrongfully convicted people and pursuing policy changes aimed at preventing those injustices in the first place. You know, I'm the I'm the founder and director of the foundation, and you know, I'm also an an, an attorney that handles uh, some of the wrongful conviction cases there. And th- thus far, for context, I wanted to share. So far, we've been able. Uh, to free 13 people in our 11 years of our doors being open, and we've been able to help pass uh, six laws, most of which are in New York, but one in Pennsylvania. We currently represent 13 other people and matters where we believe they're innocent, and we're pursuing policy changes in New York, Pennsylvania, and California. Tell me about the legislative changes that your foundation has been responsible for. How exactly did they change the law? Sure. So in 2017, uh, the New York State Legislature, they uh, passed some bills uh, pertaining to uh, mandating that the police record uh, interrogations in you know, custodial situations. Uh, they, and they passed identification reform and then also DNA data bank. And then through our partner, uh, It Could Happen to You, which is a national coalition group, which the foundation's part of, and I'm an advisory board member of, we um, spearheaded the passage of the country's first um, Commission on Prosecutor Conduct, so independent oversight board that can investigate allegations of prosecutorial misconduct. That was the first of its kind in the country, and we also helped pass uh, discovery reform. And uh, right now, we just helped pass, along with many other um, advocacy organizations and individual advocates, we just passed the uh, legislatively the Challenging Wrongful Convictions Act in New York. We're waiting to see if Governor, we're hoping Governor Hochul will sign the bill. Uh, But in brief, it would provide counsel for indigent defendants in post-conviction motions. It would allow people who've pled guilty, if they get a good attorney afterwards and they find some previously unknown evidence of innocence, it would simply allow the court to consider that evidence. I mean, right now the court would not consider it. And it would allow anyone who has a conviction for a crime that subsequently has become legal to go back to court to remove that from their record so that the collateral consequences, they're not still impacted by them. Can you explain that a little bit more for listeners so that we all understand? Explain exactly why courts will not consider motions regarding exigent circumstances for evidence. Can, can you flesh that out a little bit with the current state is and how convicted felons and incarcerated are impacted by the current law? What does it look like? There's a court of appeals decision in a case referred to as uh, People versus Tiger, and that case says that if a defendant has pled guilty, that you know that the courts will no longer allow, will not consider evidence of innocence. They won't allow someone to come to court and argue that they're actually innocent. They won't allow them to argue that there's newly discovered evidence. Their attorneys would simply be limited to arguing that this new evidence shows that the prior attorney didn't do a sufficient investigation. And frankly, mm-hmm. that's really not the right argument. You're jumping through hoops and stretching to make that the better, the better. Uh, so, for example, we have a we have a case. I'm co-counsel on a case in um, Erie County, New York. My client was uh, wasn't his uh, Omar Clark, and he had a terrible attorney. The attorney did no investigation, didn't talk to witnesses, 
you know, didn't present him with, with you know, the viability of a, of, of a defense that the case he was charged with the rape and the case was defensible, you know, and uh, we believe he was innocent. But his attorney did literally no investigation. And uh, at the end, when it was time to go to trial, he instead pled guilty, being fearful that he was going to get 25 years. So he pled guilty and got a sentence of seven years. Subsequent to that, uh, he obtained pro bono representation, and that uh, attorney uh, pulled the foundation and me in, into the case, and we found quite a lot of evidence of of his innocence. And we presented that to the court. The court gave us an evidentiary hearing. We presented all of our evidence, and we were not allowed to argue that that proved he was innocent. We were not allowed to prove, as argue that newly discovered evidence that the outcome would have been. Uh, likely would have been different. I was. We were limited to arguing that the prior attorney did an inadequate investigation, and ultimately the court ruled against us. So the conviction remained intact, and he remains remains uh, imprisoned. And I have to underscore the climate surrounding plea agreements, and especially on the federal level, where it can be as high as ninety nine percent of federal convictions are because of plea agreements. At a minimum, over ninety seven percent. And what you are articulating here is the concept that procedurally speaking, the only way that you can appeal or introduce those motions would be regarding ineffective assistance of counsel. So essentially, the way the law works, if you plead guilty, and there are so many, there's such a larger conversation to be had about the pressures involved in interrogations, which is why you have lobbied successfully to have them be recorded and the like, there, there's... It, we cannot overstate the amount of pressures and external circumstances that impact uh, plea agreements and confessions, essentially. But once that box is checked, then procedurally, the only thing you can argue is that you had ineffective assistance of counsel. So all of these people are trying to fit in their their appeals in that box. But as you just illustrated, more often than not, it is unsuccessful because the bar for that is quite high. And so defendants are left without options. And it's a really unfortunate sort of tidal wave result of what is a very tiny space that most defendants have to go through and most plea agreements and confessions go through that then lands them in this ocean of of zero options so what you what i see that what you are doing is trying to ensure the um caliber and the adequacy of confessions themselves to prevent from having so many defendants be incarcerated and convicted for things that they didn't commit um, or the extent of things that they didn't commit. It, it, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Correct. I, I want to just add just a little bit of color and mention one other change, and then I know we're going to get to my backstory and what my motivation is. Uh, just to piggyback, uh, just to share with people that uh, coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 29% of the DNA-proven wrongful convictions, and that while adults have given coerced false confessions, particularly vulnerable populations, to giving a false confession – are youth and people with mental health issues. So I wanted to share that. I mean, to case less anybody think, well, who who falsely confesses? Well, actually, quite 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 a bit of people. The other major piece of legislation that we're working on, cautiously optimistic that we're going to pass it this session, is in Pennsylvania. Uh, again, with the coalition group, it could happen to you. The Pennsylvania chapter, which again the foundation's part of, and I'm part advisory board member of them. We're trying to pass exoneree compensation meaning that Pennsylvania is one out of 12 states in the United States uh, that uh, 
if someone is exonerated, the state does not will not compensate them. They will not give them anything for the time that they spent in prison. And so we're cautiously optimistic that we're going to be able to um, pass it. We've um, gotten some broad bipartisan support. And you know, it's uh, ultimately going to come down to um, Senator uh, Baker, um, a Republican out of uh, Luzerne County. And we're hoping that she's going to be on board with exoneree compensation, because if she is, we have the votes to pass it. And if she's not, it won't get out of uh, her committee. So we're hoping that we can do that. We think it's unfair that if somebody spent time in prison for a crime they're later proven innocent of, that the state would not compensate them financially, which is nothing gives you the time back, but that's an important tool to try to rebuild your life. And as we've talked about before, when options, when the doors are closed permanently, that does no one any good. And there should be bipartisan and, and unilateral support for the concept of someone to preserve their options. So that post-incarceration for someone that has had years of their life taken away after a wrongful conviction to have zero options then is not right on any level. And that also just increases the uptick in federal lawsuits then for color of authority, which either way, people will pursue the options that they have, might as well create ones that are commensurate with other states and with the philosophy we have, um, which is a fair and just system and to remedy wrongs and especially wrongs that within purview of the government. hundred percent. And just to add, you know, wrongful conviction, which is really what today's um, interview is about, you know, this is not like a, a Democrat or Republican issue. This is a human rights issue. And as such, it should be bipartisan as you just articulated. And the last thing I'll say on compensation is that the importance of having a state law that provides compensation is that the only other way to get compensated would be to file a federal lawsuit. But having a state law just says that it's like a no-fault insurance. All you, all somebody would have to prove to get compensated is that they were in prison for a crime they're innocent of. They just would have to prove that. In a federal lawsuit, that's only half the equation. You have to then also show that there was a malicious violation of a constitutional right that led to the wrongful imprisonment. That's a very hard bar. That's a high bar, and many people can't meet that. Plus, for anyone like-minded as I am, which is, you know, fixated on the stewardship of our tax dollars, any efficiency is better for everyone. So for those weighing the cost benefits of this, not only um, is freedom priceless and to your point, lost time is difficult to even state a recompense number for that, a quotient for that. But the whole point is it's cheaper for the state to compensate people who have been wrongfully convicted than defending against suits or federal suits, defending against federal suits. Either way, the dollars are more. It is better to acknowledge and have a, a vehicle for that. You mentioned discovery reform. Before we get to your backstory, can you just quickly say the discovery reform that you've been responsible for? Because I'm curious. Yes, sure. And, and and to be clear, it was the foundation, our coalition, and many other organizations and, and advocates. It's many people in it. I don't want to make it appear as though it's, you know, me or my foundation single-handedly. We're all working in unison. So I do want to acknowledge that. Uh, so in a nutshell, so discovery mean, means that evidence that the prosecution has to turn over to the defense. So previously, what the law was in New York so anything favorable to the defense has to be turned over, I, I, as you know, referred to as Brady material. But beyond that, 
what discovery was in New York, uh, which called Rosario material. Um, so the prosecution would have to turn over uh, evidence that they have, but they would only do that on the eve of a hearing or on the eve of a trial, and then only pertaining to those witnesses that they're planning to call. So if they're not, if the prosecution isn't planning to call a witness, they don't have to turn that evidence over. And so what was happening was a lot of people were not getting information they were supposed to have. It's it's a bad idea to have the prosecution decide what is going to be helpful to the defense or not. The defense should get the evidence and decide. So that was one issue that was resulting in a lot of Brady violations. But in terms of the Rosario, imagine if you're an attorney and you suddenly get, you know, 50 documents or 100 documents turned over to you, you know, a, a day or two or on the just before a hearing or just before a trial. I mean, that can, you don't have time to digest it or to investigate or think about, you know, how that's going to affect your theory of the case, you know, uh, so that that was uh, that's what was going on. And it was, you know, was basically trial by ambush rather than mm. rather than a search uh, for the truth. So that's how the law was before. And by the way, speaking of people, innocent people pleading guilty, a lot of people were pleading guilty without ever knowing what the evidence was against them. So the prosecution would say, look, you can go to exercise your right to trial. If you lose, you may get 15, 20, 25 years, or you can plead guilty to uh, uh, and get five to 15. But the deal is only good right now. And then the defendant's asking the lawyer, well, should I should I take the deal? What do you advise me to do? And the lawyer's like, well, I, I don't know what to advise you to do. I don't know what the evidence is against you. I don't know if, you know, this case is defendable. It's If it's not, what what our strategy would be or how likely I could successfully defend you or not. I, I have no opinion on what you should do. And a lot of people were just taking, taking uh, plea bargains. And we're saying that that's not fair and that doesn't allow for accurate outcomes. So that's what the law was previously. Now, with the change, uh, all the evidence has to be turned over automatically um, within, uh, you know, uh, automatically. And then then within 30 days and anything past that, the prosecution would have to get a court order to get additional time to turn the, the evidence over. So we went from being New York, went from being one of the worst states in terms of discovery to now being one of the one of the best states in, in discovery. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. I'm so glad that you just shared all about that because that was such a massive blight on the, quote, justice system here. And many people think that does, that the discovery phase only impacts a trial. You know, they put it in a separate box. People think of things in chapters or in, in boxes. But how you articulated the impact on pleads and the impact on conf- – like that is – it cannot be overstated. So I'm just so grateful to you for sharing that with us and, of course, most importantly for along with the work of It Could Happen to You and all of your – allied advocates um, for changing the law to reflect that because that's in one instant you've affected honestly countless lives. So that sort of brings us then to your story, Jeff, and you know, the aptly stated sister foundation to the Jeffrey Deskovic foundation of justice is it could happen to you. And the reality is it did happen to you. 
Can you share with us your story of wrongful conviction and of eventual exoneration? Sure. I'll give a short couple sentence and then whatever you'd like to break down, you'll, I'll rely on you to ask me follow-up uh, questions. I'll, my direct examination will be done, counselor. You can cross. <laughs> <laughs> Crack a legal joke. Uh, <laughs> so uh, in a nutshell, uh, I was um, uh, arrested at 16 years old for a murder and rape, which I did not commit. The crime happened in Westchester County, a suburb of New York. I turned 17 uh, when um, shortly before the trial started, uh, where based upon a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, terrible public defender, it resulted in my being wrongfully convicted. Despite the DNA not matching me, I was given a 15 to life sentence. I was sent to a men's maximum security prison where I lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole because I maintained my innocence rather than expressing remorse and taking responsibility. Ultimately, I was exonerated on actual innocence grounds through further DNA testing through the DNA data bank, which not only affirmed my innocence, but it also identified the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim. Uh, just three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and mother of two. So my convict, my conviction, as I said, with my all my charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds, and he was subsequently arrested and convicted of the crime. And that was 16 years ago. Hence, my becoming an individual advocate, speaking, writing, meeting with elected officials, trading privacy for awareness, uh, finishing the bachelor's, getting the master's, starting the foundation, ultimately becoming a lawyer. And here we, with the life mission of freeing people, and here we are. Will you please give us as well a few sentences about what happened uh, post-exoneration? So you just said you got your master's, you went to law school, you started the foundation, but what in the way of compensation from the state and what did that look like for you? Sure. So it took it took about five years for me to get some, comp, get comp, compensation. Um, the numbers are public, so some people are funny about saying the money. I'm not. It's public record. I'm fine with it. So uh, my I was given um, $1.85 million um, from from the state. That's what the, the rate at that time people were averaging about $2 million. So that was you know very good by way of settlement. Uh, I also brought the federal civil rights lawsuit. Uh, I had four defendants. That was um, the city of Peekskill because they had coerced a false confession out of me. They had purposely not documented uh, witness interviews. Uh, another defendant was Westchester County because he was their medical examiner that uh, committed fraud. And then then it was um, uh, Westchester County Legal Aid for deficient representation. So I told my public defender, I gave him my alibi. I was able to recall where I was and who I was with at the time the crime happened. There was a note in the legal aid file in which he memorialized that, and it was equally cl clear that he never spoke to the alibi, never had an investigator go and speak. So they settled with me. Those those um, three defendants settled with me. The last defendant was Putnam County because the Peekskill police, they drove me on uh, across county lines 40 minutes away by car, delivering me into the hands of this Putnam County Sheriff's investigator who was a polygraphist, and he... Uh, coerced me with the polygraph um, over the course of six and a half to seven um, hours, and so um, for his for his role in that and for his fabricating a statement and attributing it to me, 
you know, that was the basis of that lawsuit. I went to trial against him and uh, I was able to win a jury verdict. So in terms of the monetary, and this is New York, each state is going to be different. So in terms of the monetary aspect of it, uh, Westchester County, I'm going to use the word paid very, <laughs> because uh, remember that you have to pay the legal expenses and then the lawyers also take a third, taking the case on what's called contingency, meaning you don't pay them anything unless they win. But in exchange for taking on that risk, they're, they're in, it's, it's industry standard for them to get a third. So as a plaintiff, someone bringing a case, you typically keep 55 to 60% of whatever is awarded. So uh, against Westchester, Westchester County paid uh, $6.5 million. The city of Peekskill paid 5.3. I'm not allowed to disclose how much legal aid paid. And I won a jury verdict against Putnam County. So the jury didn't realize I had a deal in place with them where Putnam County was concerned I was going to bankrupt their county. So they wanted me to guarantee them that they wouldn't have to pay over a certain amount, no, ma no matter what happened. And uh, I was willing to give them that ceiling in exchange for the floor. So the figures in play, if they, they agreed that if I won, they would have to pay $10 million. And, and if they won or, you know, they would just have to pay six and a half. So I wanted the jury didn't realize that. And, you know, they came back with like a $41,161,000 verdict. So they had to pay the higher amount. And before anyone asked, no, I don't regret doing that deal because, um, you know, in, in reality, the, re the re award would have been reduced quite a bit by the trial judge. And then, you know, the money would have been tied up for a few years and it would have been further reduced. So I'm, I'm happy with just with making that deal. I mean, you don't, no one's going to get that kind of money in general. For an entity that predicated parole on you articulating remorse, was any remorse expressed by any of the entities that you just mentioned? No, no. The short answer is no. But to put a little bit of color to it, I did get a symbolic apology from the district attorney who consented to the testing and consented to the exoneration. But she was not the district attorney at the time that I was convicted, and she was not the district attorney that fought all the appeals, including blocking me several times from getting testing. I got a symbolic apology from the prosecutor in the courtroom, but that was not the prosecutor who wrongfully convicted me or fought the appeals. I got a symbolic apology from the judge, but that was not the judge that presided over the trial and made all of these rulings contrary to the law, which set the stage for me ultimately being wrongfully convicted. So... I got the symbolic apologies. That's it. The only person that had a hand in anything that did apologize was the actual perpetrator. Mm. Yeah, he, he, yeah, but I mean, but he diluted, he diluted whatever value that had by mixing that with a lie. So he claimed that had he known that somebody was wrongfully imprisoned for the crime he, that he did, that he would have come forward and said something. But, you know, Peekskill was a small city in Westchester County, New York population of approximately 25,000 people. Murders were very rare. And this was a very big, high-profile public case. So everybody was talking about it. And, you know, it's not possible that he didn't hear, that he didn't hear of it, that he didn't know of it. At the risk of having you think that I am have a tiny brain, when you say symbolic apologies, 
Is that because those figureheads were sort of the proxies for the state and their positions at the time? It's because it was the current assistant DA, not the actual DA. It was the current judge, not the prior judge. That's why you use the word symbolic for the apologies, correct? Correct. What would have meant a lot more would have been had the district attorney who was the elected official, you know, even being out of office, had he articulated apology, had the prosecutor articulated, you know, an, an, an apology, had the trial judge articulated apology, just like I never got an apology from the medical examiner. I never got an apology from a public defender. I didn't get an apology from uh, polygraphist Daniel Stevens. I didn't get an apology from any of the two detectives. That would have been where the real value of an apology, a, a closure and acceptance and acknowledgement of guilt, well, guilt and responsibility on their part, mm-hmm. on their part, mm-hmm. would have meant something. And so diving into those different um, sort of directorates that you articulated, let's start mm-hmm. with the alleged confession, which sure. my understanding, you know, it occurred after six hours, three polygraph sessions and extensive questioning by detectives between sessions. Can you describe for listeners what that was like and what ultimately led to you signing a false confession? Yeah, I'm going to put some color on it. So mm-hmm. um, firstly, prior to the day of the false confession, there was a six-week interaction period between the police the, the police and myself in which half the time they would talk to me, they'd start off questioning me like a suspect. And when I would become frightened and I'd want to get away from them and I wouldn't want to continue in the conversation, they switched it up and uh, they came up with this, you know, Jeff as a junior detective helper theme. So prior to being a teenager, I wanted to be a cop when I grew up. And somehow or another, they learned of that. And so they would say things like, you know, we need your help to solve the crime. Uh, You know, uh, the kids won't talk around us, but they will around you. Uh, You know, let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. I came from a single-parent household. My father was never involved in my life at all, and that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique where one officer was pretending to be my friend. So in time, I began to look up to him as a father figure. So that's what went on for six weeks. They got me at the end to agree to take a polygraph, a lie detector test. They said, look, we got some new information in the file. We want to share that with you. That will allow you to be even more helpful to us. But first, you have to take and pass the polygraph. So the next day, rather than go to the school. I went to the police station for the test because it was a school day. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school. They had no idea that anything was wrong. So therefore they did not call around looking for me. But instead of giving me the polygraph at a Peekskill police headquarters, where I expected it to be, they instead drove me across county lines, 40 minutes away by car uh, to Putnam County, uh, to the Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, Daniel Stevens, Uh, He was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as law enforcement. He never read me my rights. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the the whole time I was there. He gave me a four-page brochure, which he said explained how the polygraph worked. But it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But then I pushed past my own concern. I figured, well, I'm here to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. And from there, he put me in a small room um, and he gave me countless cups of coffee in order to get me nervous. And then he hooked me up to the polygraph machine and then he launched into his third degree tactics. 
So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. And towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me. There was there was him, the, the other detective from Peekskill, and, and, and the lieutenant from, from Peekskill. So it was three cops there plus the polygraphist who I didn't realize was, was law enforcement. So he said, look, the other officers are going to harm you. I've been holding them off. I, I, I can't do that any longer. You have to help yourself. Listen, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, I wasn't thinking about the long term. I was just concerned with my safety in the moment. I I was in fear of my life because the fact that I didn't know where I was and and that no one else knew where I was either, it loomed rather large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. You know, and then there was this push-pull dynamic. So on one hand, the possibility of harm that he had been thrown in the air, but then he had thrown me this false life preserver. So I took the out which he offered, and I made up a story based on the information that they had given me that day and in six weeks run up to run up to the day. Um, by the by, the time it was all said and done, I, I had collapsed on the floor in a fetal position. I was crying uncontrollably. Um, needless to say, I was arrested. Uh, I was charged with the murder and rape. I want to add that the interrogation, it was not videotaped. There was no audio tape. There was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And when we we went to court, they left the threat and false promise, the two illegal acts they engaged in. They left that out of their testimony. Hearing this, it it is so shocking that that, confession went forward. Um, But to your point later, uh, both the entities and the court system, the juries of your peers recognized how false this all was and how inadequate it all was. So can you walk us through though, after that point, like how did that impact the, you know, what, what, what were the following procedural steps after that? So after the confession, I was, I was, in fact, arrested and charged with a murder and rape. Mm-hmm. Uh, before the trial ha- started, the DNA test results came in from the FBI lab, which showed that seminal fluid found in and around the victim didn't match me. And, it's, and my lawyer then moved to dismiss the indictment against me based on that, that the judge denied the motion. Uh, in order to explain the DNA evidence away, that's where the prosecutor got the medical examiner to to say, try try to follow this. This is not going to be easy. It's kind of silly. But he said, the medical examiner said, he remembered that he forgot to document medical findings, which he claimed showed that the 15-year-old victim had been promiscuous. And that's what I'll open the door for the prosecutor to argue that that's how the seminal fluid didn't come from Deskovic, and yet he was so guilty. She was sleeping around, and she must have slept with somebody prior to you murdering and raping her. And then taking it a step forward, he named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim. But he never tried to set the proper evidentiary foundation. So he never 
for example, got a DNA sample from this other youth to do the test. He never called him as a witness to give verbal testimony to that effect. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. And he got away with that because the victim's family was not coming to court. So they had no idea of how her reputation was being trashed in the process of trying to convict me. And secondly, more importantly, my the public defender that I had allowed him to get away with it. My lawyer essentially didn't defend me. He rarely met with me when I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. He was always shutting me up. One time he told me he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that DNA to argue that that proved that the confession was coerced and false. He literally asked no questions at all of the medical examiner. He should have never represented me in the first place because of a conflict of interest. The other youth that the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim was represented by another member of Westchester County Legal Aid and specifically by the lawyer who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. So that conflict prevented the defense from asking him to give a sample. It prevented the defense from calling him as a witness to explode the consensual sex theory. Uh, Lastly, in terms of addressing the confession, when you defend a case that has a false confession, you have to answer that confession. You have to explain that confession. You have to disprove that confession in as many ways as you can. And you bring it all together in your closing argument. But he didn't do any of that. Sometimes he argued to the jury the confession never happened at all. Other times he argued that it did happen, but it was coerced. And at still other times he was arguing that it was a false confession. So added all up, I was wrongfully convicted. And I was given a 15 to life sentence because I had been charged as an adult and tried as an adult. The judge even sentenced me despite saying to me on the record, you know, maybe you are innocent. He took the easy way out rather than overturning the conviction, which he could have done by reversing any number of rulings he made against me in the course of the trial. So from there, I was sent to a men's maximum security prison. And, you know, where I naively thought that the court system would get better the higher up you go, because the more experienced and learned the judges are, or so I thought. I went to the appellate division. My lawyer argued that I was innocent. She argued that there was legally insufficient evidence of guilt, that the prosecution hadn't proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, and that the verdict was against the weight of the evidence. She argued that my Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by the way I'd been questioned. She argued that my Sixth Amendment right to confrontation had been violated because the judge allowed the, allowed the polygraphers to repeatedly tell the jury that I failed the polygraph when I denied committing the crime, but banned my lawyer from asking him questions about the methods he used to arrive at his opinion. Uh, evidence had, that had been thrown out, the victim's bra had been entered into evidence as the, by the prosecution. And when the jury asked to see the bra, which was important because I'd intersected with one of the statements in the false confession where I said I ripped the bra off, that was when the court said, well, the clothes, including the bra, had been left in the court over the weekend and the, the janitor's 
apparently thought it was garbage, and so they threw it out. So the evidence wasn't available any longer. So that issue was argued. The judge being biased was argued. Uh, in, in total, there were 10 different issues that were argued. The appellate division ruled that they, they didn't find anything wrong with how I'd been questioned. They uh, they ruled that I was not in custody. I was free to come and go as I wanted, and therefore they ruled that the statements were voluntary. And then they knocked out all the rest of my issues in one sentence. They wrote that they looked at my remaining contentions and found them either to be without merit or else not preserved for review. And they ruled against me five nothing. And it was all downhill from there. The argument motion was denied in one word, denied. The New York State Court of Appeals, the highest court, it's a you have to procedure it's a two step procedure. You have to get permission for them to appeal before they'll allow you to appeal the case. I asked for permission and they denied me permission to appeal to them. I then went to federal court. I filed a habeas corpus petition, which is when a state prisoner is arguing that his or her conviction is running contrary to the U.S. Constitution. And the court clerk gave my lawyer the wrong information pertaining to the filing procedure. And so as a result of that, my petition arrived four days too late, which the then Westchester County District Attorney um, at the time took the position that those four days were prejudicial to the government and that therefore the court should simply rule that I was late. And that's what the court did. Now I was time barred. So I appealed that ruling to the U.S. Court of Appeals where the two judges that heard my case, I got permission to appeal to them. Uh, my lawyer argued that this was not a delay caused by me or my attorney, but by the court clerk that upholding a ruling like that would cause a miscarriage of justice to continue and uh, that reversing the procedural ruling would open the door to more sophisticated DNA testing. Once again, the prosecution uh, opposed and the court, which included uh, future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, they upheld that ruling. And my lawyer then moved to re-argue the case in front of those two judges requesting that all the judges on the circuit hear the case and make a decision and that motion was denied and then the u.s supreme court declined to give me permission to appeal to them so that's seven appeals that's 11 years in prison already the only way back in the court at that point was to either for there to be a retroactive change in the law uh, or from if i discovered some new evidence which probably would have resulted in a different outcome I had no money to hire an attorney or an investigator, so I wrote letters for four years trying to find someone to take my case pro bono. You know, that you know, I, did, I did that for four years. That didn't work. And then I went to the parole board. And ultimately, I did wind up one of the letters that I wrote to a um, book author in care of the publishing company. They instead forwarded the letter, which I had intended for a book author. They instead forwarded it to uh, investigator Claudia Whitman. And she wrote me back, and when I show, showed her the DNA paperwork, she was convinced of my innocence. So she suggested that I write the Innocence Project. She lobbied them and got other respected legal professionals to lobby them to take the case. And then I got lucky that one of the intake workers, uh, Maggie Taylor, um, she represented my case uh, several times 
to the Innocence Project, you know, not taking no for an answer, which she got the first couple times. She got them to take the case on the third go-round. So getting their representation was the first of three keys. The second key is that um, former DA left office. And the third key is we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank. So it matched, it matched him. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. What was your family, your mom, what was she going through during this process, especially in the beginning when you were 16 years old? Was she with you at the trial and was she imploring your attorney at the time, do something, you know, object here. This isn't right. Did you, did you have any support in that way? My mother was coming to court. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think that she fully understood everything, neither her Mm -hmm. or my aunt. She, she was telling my lawyer to object and to do something. She did say that to him uh, uh, any number of times. But my lawyer, you know, he, he, he refused to talk to her. He wouldn't allow, he wouldn't, he wouldn't talk to her. He wouldn't talk to any of the adult males, like any of my uncles. He wouldn't talk to them. So basically I was just kind of there in over my head. And, you know, when I would ask him questions, I mean, you know, he said, look, just, you know, let me, let me do my job. You know, you, you, you already thought that you knew more than adults as it was you know, uh, you know, talking to the, to the police. So, you know, just sit and you know, sit back and let me, let me do my job, you know, but I, I thought that only guilty people were convicted, but, you know, as it turned out, I, I was wrong on that. I was convicted. You know, I, I wanted, I wanted to take the stand. I wanted to testify and explain what happened in the interrogation room, but he wouldn't let me. He said that, you know, his one loss record was better when his clients did not testify as compared to when they did. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's true. Most of his clients probably had a record. And if they took the stand, they could be asked questions about their prior criminal activity. But that didn't apply to me. I had never been arrested for anything before that. You know, and then he said it's not his job to prove that I was innocent. It was up to the prosecution to prove that that uh, I was guilty. And yeah, that's a legal principle, but it's a very naive way of practicing law. In reality, you you know, you have to present evidence of your client's innocence. So you run a risk of them possibly being wrongfully convicted, particularly in a confession case. At what point did you truly grasp that your freedom had been taken away, that you were, that that train had left the station essentially when notwithstanding all of your attempts at appeals, but when was your hope extinguished at that time, the age of 16? Was it at trial? Was it after the forced confession? Like what, at what point did it sink in? I think it sunk in after the false confession. I mean, I was very depressed. I did make a few suicide attempts, but at some point between there and the trial, I bought into what my extended family was saying that, you know, they believed in the court system and they thought the court system got it right and you're going to be okay. They're going to see that you're innocent. You're going to be found not guilty. So at some point I bought into that. So from that point, from when I bought in forward, I was expecting to be found not guilty. And so, you know, I, I lost that when I got found guilty and I slipped into that depressive state again. But then at some point I, you know, I, started and I, I 
I believed that I was going to be exonerated. And I just said, look, forget this 15 to life sentence. You just, just hold on, just hold on for like one or two years to the next appeal would be decided where I was sure that I was going to get the conviction overturned and I was going to regain my freedom because I believed in the system. So each time I lost an appeal, I just would refocus on the next legal proceeding. And when I was out of legal options, my hope then became fastened to those letters that I was sending out looking looking for help. And when that didn't work after four years, then I began to look at the parole board as a potential means of regaining my freedom. And so only when that door too got slammed, you know, that was that was when I really started, you know, wrestling with, you know, not not giving up hope. You know, I mean I, I it was flickering on and off and you know, at that point, I I came across a pen pal that I didn't know prior to that. And I was asking the stranger that I didn't know from anywhere. Do you think I should give up? Should I just commit suicide? I'm never going to get out of here. You know, and he encouraged me to keep going. And so I did. And I ultimately was exonerated. What was the incarcerated experience like for you? What was prison like for you? I would describe it as a nonstop obstacle course featuring the guards, civilians, and other prisoners as obstacles to the main goal, which was to overturn the conviction and regain my freedom. You know, I'm the, there was a lot of violence in prison. There was stabbings and cuttings and other and gang activity and other violence that did not involve weapons. That was a that was an everyday thing. The medical care was terrible. You know, sometimes the food would be not fully cooked. Other times it would be. It would be burned. There was a lot of verbal abuse on the part of the guards towards the prisoners. There was a vigilante mentality towards people who've been convicted of sex offenses. So in the course of my 16 years, there were times where I was, uh, there were times where I was um, beat up. One time I almost lost my life. So it was, you know, being in prison was, um, it was hell. At the same time, I did my best to try to avoid the loss from being compounded. So I, got the GED. I completed an associate's. I completed another year towards the bachelor's before funding was cut for college education for prisoners. And I did vocational trains. I learned to paint. I learned to type. I learned computer. I learned computer repair. I did plumbing. I worked in food service. I read three or four nonfiction books a week from 1998 to 2006. I used to go to a law library and I would read articles about other people who were exonerated. And so the law library articles of people that were exonerated, my, my um, belief in God and, and finding things to throw myself, you know, into, you know, all was part of how I, you know, survived the, the ordeal. It, you know, it was as much a psychological and mental and emotional thing as it was a, as it was something uh, physical. It wasn't just the mere absence of my freedom. I want to also mention, you know, that, you know, my mother was the only consistent visitor. My my grandmother used to come with her, but then she passed away while I was wrongfully incarcerated. Uh, my brother, who was three and a half years younger than I am, he was impacted by my wrongful conviction. I mean, the kids on the school bus used to say to him that, you know, his brother was a rapist and they would say other nasty things and they would try to hit him and stab him with pencils. And I, I guess being unable to get to me, he was the next best thing. I had several sets of aunts and uncles. They would come and visit, but then they would disappear for three, four years. And then they 
visit and then disappear for three, four years. So, and in the end, the last six years, you know, I you would see my mother maybe once every six months. So in a lot of ways, though not literal, I mean, I largely did the time by, by myself. You know, it was a very lonely thing. As an attorney now, have you been able to reread or have access to any of your files? You mentioned some of the the note that was in the legal aid file and such, but have you actually seen your file at any time as an attorney? And what struck you about it? Well, I, I saw the file, but that was prior to me being an attorney. That was when my civil right when my compensation case in New York York law and then in the federal civil rights while that was going on. But that was prior to me being an attorney. But I have gotten the file and I have, you know, read the read testimony. And then I I certainly attended all of the depositions of the of the of the people involved in my case. So, yeah. um, But, you know, as, as but as I have become, you know, as I became an attorney, you know, um. I feel like, you know, I feel like a really, a really good third year law student could have done a better job than the public defender that did that, you know, that I, that I had. I mean, this case was very defendable. It was very winnable. You know, I don't understand a lot of the decisions that, that he made. I don't understand being all over the place on the confession. I don't explain that. I don't understand not making use of the DNA of not calling the, not calling the alibi. I don't understand not not attacking the 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 confession. I don't I don't understand any of those things. It doesn't make any sense. And I think that's sort of what I was getting at by that question, which was essentially, you know, to see the egregiousness in black and white, to see the glaring omissions, to see what was there that shouldn't have been, what wasn't there that should have been, et cetera. That that seeing the depth of the incompetence at the expense of your freedom for almost two decades. I just can't imagine what that was like. Yeah. It, I mean, I just, I think about, you know, the, the loss of freedom that I had and, and what that actually meant in, in concrete terms. I mean, I didn't graduate high school. I didn't, I didn't go to the high school prom. I, I didn't, I didn't finish college at a, at a more traditional age, not, not being well into a, a career and not possibly having, uh, a family and the rites of passage that passed me by that normally take place in the course of ages 17 to 32 from, you know, like I, to crystallize. I mean, this ties into the difficulty in reintegrating back into society. You know, I, I had not had a driver's license before. I never lived alone. I never went shopping. I never wrote a check. I never had to, you know, balance a budget. And all those things made it difficult. But to round out the difficulty of of reintegrating, I mean, like everybody that's been wrongfully imprisoned, I mean, there are um, psychological after effects. There's a stigma of having been in prison. You were there in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Sure. But you were there for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace? So definitely an obstacle in terms of personal relationships. You know, I was always passed over for gainful employment. It seemed like all the would-be employers wanted somebody with a work history who could just hit the ground running rather than some patients for on-the-job training. Technology had passed me by, GPS, cell phones, internet, different methods of banking hadn't been created before. Cities and towns looked different. The culture was different. So those three elements 
made it feel like I was a like I was in a parallel world, a world that I didn't didn't uh, belong in. And uh, I was, you know, and uh, I, I because I lacked financial stability, I bounced around from place to place. And at one point, I was a couple of weeks away from the uh, homeless shelter. But then Mercy College, which had given me the scholarship to finish the bachelor's, they allowed me to live on campus. And so that's how I, I avoided that. And and I did get a job as a weekly columnist, but they only wanted one article a week. I was making money doing speaking engagements, but that's not a consistent form of income. So that's what I did. I was an individual advocate for about five years, and then I was compensated. I used some of the money to start the nonprofit, designed to free people in the same position I was in and working to prevent what happened to me from others. And at some point I became not satisfied with sitting in the front row of the courtroom. I wanted to sit at the defense table and I wanted to represent some of the clients and make some of the arguments. And uh, proud to share that in this past December, uh, I had my first success as a, as a lawyer. Uh, I it was second seated um, uh, Oscar Mitchell and an attorney who's an advisory board member of my foundation. And we were able to overturn Andre Brown's uh, wrongful conviction after Andre had been in prison for 23 years. Mm. Congratulations, counselor. That's incredible. What were your colleagues like? What was the admissions process like to law school? What were the admissions boards like? Um, Did that stigma carry over as well into law school and studying for the bar and the like and amongst other attorneys? Or do you find there a reception and a support that wasn't reflective in terms of normal society and how we've civically condemned people who have been to prison? Yeah, I think... So I didn't get in the first time I tried to get to get into law school, I and mean, I didn't score well enough on the LSATs. And the law schools used to claim that they looked at candidates holistically, but in reality, it was all about the LSAT score. Mm-hmm. And I didn't score high enough, and I tried to get it anyway, arguing, look, look at what my body of work is, even without it, look at what I want to do with it. Just give me the chance. If I can't make it with the grades, I'll leave on my own. Just give me the opportunity. But nobody did. In fact, one of the one of the last schools uh, told me in the in the interview, they said, look, well, frankly, we're concerned because you're such a high profile person that we're concerned that if you flunk out of school, that that's going to really make us look bad. So they weren't willing to give me the opportunity. So it, I think it worked against me just in that aspect of it, not not like a stigmatic, you know, is it safe to have you on campus type thing. Um, but look, I did, I did get in seven years later when I, when I tried again. And I think that the needle had moved some in terms of law school. Now they really, places really were looking at candidates holistically. So uh, one of my uh, colleagues, um, Professor Ben Gershman, um, was considered to be the country's leading expert on prosecutorial misconduct. He, at this point, he was on the admissions committee, he was a founder of Pace Law School. And, you know, he said, look, I've done everything I can to get you this interview. You know, I can't get you in. I got you the interview. You have to knock the ball out of the park. And if you do, you have a shot. And if you don't, you won't. So I I aced the interview. And, um, you know, I had gotten into a different law school, but hadn't decided yet. And I you know, told Pace, look, I really would like to come here because you're in Westchester County. It's only nine blocks away from where everything happened to me at the court. And, you know, I have a home and I'd like to keep my life and my advocacy. And if I take this other offer, I'm going to do it rather than not having a desk anywhere. But 
I really would like to come here. And so I think the fact that another law school, you know, had accepted me, you know, I think that played a role in Pace's decision to give me the chance. Um, so look, I mean, I, I, in terms of law school, I mean, as you know, it's all graded on a curve. So you're 75 or 80 could, could drop down to 70 or you might, you might go as high as a low 90. You're literally in competition with everybody else. So in some ways, I mean, I was at a disadvantage because I was competing against people ha half my age and who had not been wrongfully imprisoned and the psychological after effects of that and certainly going, some of them going to really top level schools. Um, but on the other hand, I was a non-traditional student, so I was older, I was more mature. Uh, I think some of the work was abstract for them. When I sat in Civ Pro, I, I know what a deposition <laughs> is. It's not some you know, abstract concept that it was for them. And I was not distracted. And I simply was willing to work, you know, two or three times harder than them. But at the same time, you know, uh, I, I was getting more more and more opportunities to do advocacy work from speaking and, and, you know, meeting with elected officials at a higher clip and media, new media interviews. And I wasn't turning anything away. So I was kind of in effect working, you know, full time, but I was able to do it. I mean, uh, you know, and I managed to, I'm, passed and I, you know, I figured out how to excel in law school and I started hitting the dean's list and I worked really hard when it came to the, the, the time period between uh, graduation and, and uh, taking the bar where, where a light day of study was 10 hours and it's usually 14. But I did, I just, I set a realistic schedule. I set a goal. I, I came up with the realistic plan and I wasn't afraid of hard work and I, I just didn't, I didn't quit. And I, got through and, you know, here, here I am. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. Can I ask you, because I think for, for every attorney, it, it might be different, but um, was it a prouder moment for you to, to graduate, to get your di diploma from law school or to pass the bar? Pass the bar. Okay. So then yeah, can you describe that moment for me? How did it feel for you to pass the bar? Yeah, so I was in California with uh, with with a friend and uh, colleague. So it could happen to you. Also has a California chapter. So I'm active in the New York, Pennsylvania, and California chapter. So I was in I was in um, California, and we were all having uh, lunch prior to then going to the Capitol in Sacramento and meeting with a bunch of elected officials um, there on the issue of prosecutorial misconduct in California. So, uh, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I checked my phone cause I'm checking my phone, like, you know, like three and four times a day for yeah. a number of days to, you know, get the, uh, to, to get the outcome of the, uh, bar, bar exam. And, uh, I saw that it, uh, I had an email, I got an email and I opened the email and then I opened the attachment and uh, I saw that, uh, I, I passed the bar and, um, I remember I just started um, screaming for joy and jumping up and down, and so did my colleagues there. And we took some, we took some pictures and everything. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was an incredible moment. I, I had on a shirt that so someone in, in the, the the faculty at, at the grad school who had helped me to sign up for the right courses and stuff en route to 
getting the master's degree. Uh, she came to the law school graduation, which was an entirely, entirely different school. And she had given me a gift when I when I crossed the dais after I'd gotten the sash put on and I came across the dais and she was uh, waiting for me on the other side. And uh, you know, she gave me a hug and she had on her, her umbrella and she held out this shirt, this T-shirt. It's, it's white, but it was in blue. And it, the T-shirt said, uh, I, I'm that exoneree who's also an attorney. And by coincidence, I, I happened to be wearing that shirt at, at the lunch when I got the news. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apt. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> when you look back on your life, does it feel, you know, like you've lived a hundred lives? Does it feel like a, a different person? Or do you find and hold that connective tissue and thread throughout it all? And you see that it was you the whole time from that? Because yeah. I, I just, you know, even hearing your incredibly impactful story, I mean, I feel emotional just listening and being a witness to this story and to have a slice of what I perceive as just such anguish and such loss and such despair. And then to have this journey through um, such triumph and positive impact and knowing that you've changed the world for so many others that you've given options to those along with your, your fellow allies who that you've given options to those who never would have had it. Like you did not have it. I mean, it's just incredible to me. What is it? What is that trajectory? How does that resonate to you? So I perceive that I've lived four lives. There's my life before I was arrested. There was my life in prison. There was my life um, post-exoneration, but before I was compensated. And then there's my life after I was compensated. So I feel like those are four different lives yeah. in, 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 in a lot of ways. Um, but I do make sense of everything um, through my belief, which is, you know, I, I believe I'm in doing in the world what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to fight wrongful conviction. I'm supposed to help people who are have been wrongfully imprisoned like I was. I'm supposed to prevent this from from other people, you know. And so I, I look like I look at it like I went through everything as part of the part of the prep, part of the prerequisite to to doing that. And in doing so, you know, I have a sense of um, I have a sense of meaning it's healing it's cathartic it make it makes a difference it makes my uh suffering count for something and with that level of acceptance i i have like a type of you know inner inner peace about me uh, i'm not uh angry or bitter person uh you know I, I feel like i've if i was i've lost so much already as is if i was to be angry or bitter then i would in effect be you know losing the rest of losing the rest of my life you know i i can't live a happy and meaningful life if i'm uh bitter and it's not like if i was angry or bitter that it would be impacting the people that had a hand in what happened to me but i instead take the, that energy that i feel and i channel it into the advocacy work that i do and you know that's my that's my release valve in in doing that can you share when you submitted your case to the Innocence Project and you said, I believe it took four times for them to eventually accept yours. You just share for listeners three. Uh, is it lack of resources when you with your foundation and along with it can happen to you, you know, what makes you 
choose? How do you choose and Mm -hmm. what gets through? And and for those who are looking for resources or looking for ways to support resources, tell us those X's and O's. Sure. Um, So the Innocence Project only takes cases where DNA testing is available. And that's only 5 to 12% of the cases. And they want cases that where no prior testing has been conducted. And so the problem is, and then when, so they get the evidence, they test it, and they present it back to court uh, under a newly discovered evidence argument. That wasn't an option for me because the DNA had already excluded me. So that wouldn't have been anything new. Um, What changed was the DNA data bank had been created. But it was the fact that the testing had happened already was why they said no the first couple times. And, you know, what could we do that, you know, could be something new? So the third time the uh, caseworker had suggested the data bank, which is an idea I gave to her. And so they accepted it based on that. But in terms of um, the X's and O's and case selection, so firstly, I mean, we have a similar mission to the Innocence Project of, you know, freeing wrongfully convicted people and doing policy work. Uh, where we differ, though, is um, we handle both DNA and non-DNA cases. So I, I feel strongly if there's a way to prove someone innocent, then who cares if it can't be done under the microscope? It's more boots on the ground investigation. Uh, so that's that's uh, that's a difference. And another difference is, you know, we're, we're started by an exoneree who... Um, you know, is a lawyer who, you know, used some of his compensation money to start the organization to to free people. So that's another um, distinguishing factor. And some of the policy issues that we push, they privately agree with us on, but they they don't expend any any effort on. Uh, so that's the differences. But in terms of case selection, I, I, you know, we, we look at things like we ask ourselves two questions. So do we believe in the innocence claim? Where our internal standard is, does the applicant at least, is it, is it at least plausible what they're saying, you know? And, and then, um, when we look at what was used as evidence of guilt, so we know what the red flags are, you know, around cases, mm-hmm. you know, where there's been a DNA exoneration, but the conviction had been originally caused by a false confession or a lying informant or uh, a mistake in identification. So there's patterns in this type of evidence. So we know we keep those patterns in mind when we're looking at a case of whether to we've been uh, whether to accept it or not. So do we believe the innocence claim? And number two, do we see a potential uh, path to victory? So you know we would look for things if there's something to test. Then you know uh, a saliva, sweat, blood, a clothing item where someone sweated into. But in the non-DNA cases, we look for an alternative suspect. Is there similar crimes in nearby areas? Were there any witnesses who testified that we think that they were lying? So we would do a re-interview. You know, are there any new witnesses that have bubbled to the surface that weren't known about before? Uh, We might file a FOIL request, Freedom of Information Law. And a lot of times when people file FOIL requests, there's documents that have previously been withheld illegally. And that document might be evidence or it might furnish a new investigative lead. So we look at what lines would we play if we took the case? And then we ask ourselves, well, um, if all these broke right, would this be enough? What are the odds that it is going to break right? What is the time and financial resources that would, that had taken this case uh, would would cost. So those are all part of what we take into account. 
Um, but look, doing non-DNA cases, it's certainly much more expensive. It's more labor and time consuming. And so while we do have 13 cases that are active, of which I'm co-counsel in nine of them, you know, we also have five cases that are approved but waiting. We don't have the financial resources to move forward. So we need additional funding so that we can hire other investigators and attorneys and other essential personnel to work work the case. You know, my ultimate goal would be to not just... Um, you know, add add the additional personnel we need, which would allow us to work on freeing more people, but to ultimately have a chapter of the Deskovic Foundation in each state and ultimately each country. I mean, I really see this as a worldwide issue and countries where we don't hear about exonerations. It's not because that there aren't any wrongful convictions happening. It's because there's no one being exonerated. There's very few to no entities or doing doing this work. And so that's what the ultimate dream is. And the idea is for it to be a legacy that long outlives me. I think you're there already. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, for trusting our platform with that story. Um, thank you for your advocacy work and for the tremendous impact you've had on the criminal justice system already. And I have no doubt how much more impact you and your allies will have. And I just want you to know that I'm I'm proud to be your colleague. I'm proud that you are a fellow attorney and you make the credibility of the bar uh, and the character of the bar much higher, my friend. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. If you have a story or topic you want to hear on the show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at truecrimepodcast at fox.com. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.